Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Oh, hi, hello, nerds. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I'm your host, as always, Liv, wishing you a very happy Pride Month. It's June, and as always, that means I am bringing to you some badass LGBTQIA content from the ancient world. Now, first and foremost, I know that the best way to make the world a better place for people who fall under the broad and wonderful category of LGBTQIA+, is to normalize the fuck out of it, (laughs) because it's normal, and thus to not only spend a single month amplifying these stories and voices. This has been brought up to me, and I promise I am aware. This is, it's completely true. However, when it comes to my content, 
The issue is, quite simply, I am beholden to the ancient sources, and thus, there is only a finite number of stories of this kind of representation that's in the ancient world. Because of this, I do like to focus on these stories in June, because it feels celebratory and welcoming, but also there aren't enough stories for me to tell them year-round. Honestly, I think I've basically covered all the stories they are are, though I promise I'm always looking for more. Next year, I hope to retell some of the stories I told in the very early days of the podcast, finding more details and fun bits and pieces as I love to do. But this year, well, I'm not in the country and not by my microphone, and instead, I had to prepare ahead. Which means, instead of bringing you brand new stories that may or may not exist, or stories with new details, I'm bringing you a special episode of clips and stories selected by the two wonderful women who work with me, Michaela Smith and the new intern, the wonderful Grace Roby, who was so eager to help me out in this celebration of Pride Month. So huge thanks to Michaela and Grace for picking out these stories to share with you. Also, an extra huge thanks to the incredible Michaela Smith, the Hermes to my Olympians, my messenger goddess and helper of all sorts for putting together the audio for this episode, pulling all of the clips and all the bits and pieces. I am so grateful to both Michaela and Grace for their work all the time, but uh, particularly on this episode. And, well, next week, where we'll be looking at selections from the conversations I've had that feature LGBTQIA plus characters. Because, oh... I have had some good conversations. This is the Pride Special episode. Gay gods, transgender transformations, and pansexual poets. LGBTQIA representation in ancient Greece. Dionysus finds Ampelus to be absolutely gorgeous. I like to think they're about the same age, though you never know. We're gonna go with they are. He is just the most beautiful man Dionysus has ever seen, just striking and stunning, and oh my gods, how can anyone be quite so beautiful? These are the thoughts running through Dionysus's mind, and while he pretends that he himself is not a god, at least for now, he starts to flirt with Ampelus. He flatters the man, asking how he could be so beautiful, which gods are his parents, for he must have immortal parents, Dionysus explains, because how else could he possibly have turned out like he has? It's flattery, definitely, and flirty, absolutely, but there's also a sincerity in the way it's described that I think is somewhat unique to Dionysus, at least in the way I see him. He's sincere and often just a nice guy. He has his issues, yes, but ultimately Dionysus just feels to be the least threatening, the most lovely and genuine of the gods. As he continues to make eyes at Ampelus, chatting up the young man, he asks, quote, 
What father begat you? What immortal womb brought you forth? Which of the graces gave you birth? What handsome Apollo made you? Tell me, my friend, do not hide your kin. If you come another Eros, unwinged, without arrows, without quiver, which of the blessed slept with Aphrodite and bred you? But indeed I tremble to name Cypris as your mother, for I would not call Hephaestus or Ares your father. Ampelus is, as you might imagine, incredibly taken with Dionysus. Here's this guy, he's gorgeous and flirty and fun and so, so charming, and he's telling Ampelus that he's just the most beautiful man he's ever seen. The pair hit it off immediately, and before long, Dionysus spends every waking moment thinking of Ampelus, and while it's not explicit, because this story is more devoted to the actions of the god, I'd like to imagine that Ampelus feels the same. I know I would. Dionysus is so taken with Ampelus that he finds himself distracted by everything else in his life. If music plays in the woods, satyrs beating on drums, but Ampelus isn't around, Dionysus is unmoved by it. If he attempts to play his own instruments, but Ampelus isn't there, he simply can't even get into his own songs. When he's with Ampelus and the man stops speaking to Dionysus, Dionysus becomes immediately sad, bummed out, just missing Ampelus' voice. And worst of all, if Ampelus dances amongst the other satyrs, everyone joining in, Dionysus is full of envy. Now, is this healthy in modern terms? Absolutely not. Is it kind of endearing when you're reading about it in an ancient epic, given it involves two consenting men who we will call adults for these purposes because it's actually a little questionable, but that would just make it too weird? Yes. What follows this announcement of a double pipe of love as prize for their so-called wrestling contest is, well, a very detailed description of the so-called wrestling contest between Dionysus and Ampelus. Phrases like, quote, Bacchus was in heaven amid this honey-sweet wrestling, and love gave him a double joy lifting and lifted. And, quote, Bacchus ran his two hands round the young man's waist, squeezing his body with a loving grip. And even better, quote, Thus, while Bacchus lay willingly on the ground, the boy sat across his naked belly, and Bacchus, in delight, lay stretched at full length on the ground, sustaining the sweet burden on his paunch. At one point, he's described as having, quote, dislodged the beloved burden. And thus, when their wrestling matches over, quote, both rolled in the dust and the sweat poured out to tell them they were tired. <laughs> and to cap it all off, it seems that Dionysus lost on purpose, letting Ampelus have it. The prize. The double pipe of love. And, well, after this wrestling match for the double pipe, they decide they aren't done competing yet, so they hold a very not-at-all-erotic foot race with a bunch of other dudes that is much less exciting than the wrestling match. But when Ampelus seems like he's going to lose the match to the two others competing, 
Dionysus fills in with speed and messes with the other two so that in the end, Ampelus still comes out on top. When Ampelus has won the foot race, he celebrates with Dionysus, throwing his arms around the god in excitement. And one of the men he beat in the race, Iobacus, sees how excited Ampelus is to have won two competitions, so he suggests the man go for a third. You've done so well so far, he says. Why not try to beat Dionysus in a swimming competition? He suggests that Ampelus and Dionysus compete against each other in the stream, just the two of them. If you win this match too, Iobacus adds, I'll give you a double garland to show you've beat Dionysus twice. Of course, this is just too exciting for Ampelus to bear. I mean, two garlands? (gasps) What is he going to do with those riches? So he quite eagerly agrees to compete with Dionysus once more, this time whilst wet. Tragically, all of the stories of relationships between men that I can think of, Apollo and Hyacinthus, Cyparissus, Dionysus and Ampelus, Heracles and Hylas, even Achilles and Patroclus, have one major thing in common. They end tragically. There are affairs between men that don't end in full-blown tragic death, I would imagine. Heracles had a number of brief boyfriends that I can't recall right now. I don't think they all died. But mostly, and certainly in the stories that describe any form of passionate love between men, they end tragically. This is a reminder from the ancient world that as much as we might want to label them progressive in these ways... They really weren't. They simply included the bare minimum in a pre-Christian world, acknowledgement that attraction and love could and did exist between people of the same sex or gender or just people overall. They were still a patriarchy that placed inherent value in opposite sex relationships. Not suggesting that men wouldn't or couldn't love other men, at least for a time, but they could not live like that. The tragedies of those examples enforce the idea that in ancient Greece, regardless of how loving or passionate those relationships were, they couldn't last, at least in the traditional society, or at least openly. I'm sure that there were people who found a way to live their lives in their own way, but they were limited. Even think about that moment when Kalamos is calling out about the death of Karpos. He specifically says, like, if you'd wanted marriage you could have married my sister. Like he's acknowledging that if Karpos had wanted that quote-unquote traditional life, that, that traditional sort of future, he could have had it, but he would have had to have it with a woman. It's, it's an interesting way to think about this and to look at it, even at just to have that specific example of sort of that reminder that love is love, but back then it didn't fully work that way. Because, you know, the patriarchy and power structure between men and women and reproduction and etc, etc, etc. I do think, though, it's important to call out these stories for understanding love between men, love across genders, and in the case of many other stories I've told, an understanding that there were, very obviously, gender non-conforming and transgender people in the ancient world. I find it to be one of the better arguments against transphobes who claim nonsensical ideals about this being new or a fad. Just scream Iphis in their face, or Canis, or Tiresias. Just like the story from today, those stories of trans people are often dark, but they still recognize their existence and their need to be transformed into their true gender that is different from the sex they were assigned at birth. 
Still, though all of that is true, we also do have to watch just how much credit we give them. I give them credit for recognizing these concepts, relationships, that passions existed. But I think most of that credit is due in comparison to the overarching Christian ideals that have influenced so many of our modern societies now, and especially in comparison to the Christian histories of so many regions in the world. Yes, the Greeks get credit for knowing that often men loved other men, for vaguely accepting the idea that maybe kind of sometimes women loved other women. They don't get as much credit there. And they definitely get credit for recognizing the diversity of genders and finding ways of understanding people who were transgender or non-binary and allowing them to mythologically live their lives in their true gender if it was different from the sex they were born with. But they were by no means progressive. And for the most part, they certainly weren't better than we are now. Still, with all of those caveats and explanations of the historical setting and nuances, these stories from the ancient Greek world still prove the most important thing. Nothing about gender identity or sexual attraction or across genders, any of it, nothing about this is new or the result of any outside factors that modern phobes of various kinds might suggest. Being gay or bi or intersex or trans or asexual is as old as time, as old as humanity itself, and the only thing different now is Finally, a bit of growing acceptance in the world and the ability to be louder. Tiresias. You remember him. He's the blind prophet of so many stories from Greek mythology. He has a hand in Oedipus and Odysseus and others, but those are the ones that are coming to me in this moment. But there was a time that Tiresias experienced a change, though a temporary one. According to Apollodorus, Tiresias once witnessed a couple of snakes fucking. Yes, snakes fucking. And when he saw those snakes fucking, he injured one of the snakes. And in return, he was changed into a woman. Later, she saw two more snakes fucking. Yes, more snakes fucking. And then was changed back into a woman. There isn't much more to the story than this, except that once, Zeus and Hera were fighting over who enjoys sex more. Men or women. There's only one person they could ask to settle the argument. Only one person had experienced both. Tiresias. So Zeus and Hera called on Tiresias to ask who experiences more pleasure during sex. And Tiresias told them, On a scale from one to ten, men experience one, and women experience the remaining nine. Hera, though, for some reason doesn't like this answer, even though I'm all for it. She blinds Tiresias, and Zeus, feeling bad for him, gifts him with the ability to see the future, to be a prophet. And he lives for ages, hence all the aforementioned stories. Jupiter transforms himself into his own daughter, Diana, the incredible badass goddess of the hunt who, again, has devoted her entire existence to never being with a man in any way and surrounding herself with amazing, like-minded females, which I think is pretty clear means what we all think it means, except the ancient Greeks who passed down these stories would never say it outright. Jupiter transforms himself into Diana, and he saunters up to Callisto as she lies comfortably on the forest floor. Oh, hey, virgin, he says. Yes, really, but it's not as weird as you think. They just talk like that back then. Oh, hey, virgin, where have you been hunting? Callisto jumps up, startled, but so happy to see Diana. Hi, Diana, she says, though less casually. Welcome, goddess, you who I love more than Jupiter, and I don't care if he hears it. Ovid is a storyteller, you guys, a true storyteller. Like, 
sure, I'm paraphrasing and making it, you know, very live, but this is what it says. Jupiter smiles, happy to hear that his disguise is working and that he's made the right decision in disguising himself. Creep. He smiles, and then he kisses her. Jupiter, as Diana, kisses Callisto, and she, and I'm going to use these pronouns because Callisto believes her to be Diana, and for the moment that's what matters, she kisses Callisto passionately, not hesitantly or gently as one of Ovid's time might expect from a virgin such as Diana. She kisses her, and Callisto doesn't try to stop her. Of course, it's not explicit here again because it wouldn't be... But it seems clear enough to me that Callisto and Diana have some kind of relationship, be it a mutual crush that neither acts on or something more. Either way, when Diana kisses her, Callisto doesn't stop her. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Meanwhile, Ianthe is praying to the gods for their wedding to come soon. She's just so excited to be finally marrying Iphis. But Iphis's mother, one of the three who knows the truth, 
is praying for quite the opposite. She's constantly trying to delay, to put the wedding off, to save Iphis's secret. Finally, though, there's nothing more to use as a means of delaying the inevitable, and their wedding is set for the very next day. That night, Telethusa goes to Isis's temple, and she prays. She prays to Isis to solve this, somehow. Isis is the reason Iphis is alive at all. Certainly she can help. Telethusa pleads with Isis to take pity and save Iphis once again. As they leave Isis's temple, Iphis walks behind Telethusa, but her stride is a little longer, her features more striking, she's more broad, and her hair is shorter. Iphis is no longer the girl that feared the following day, even though it was all he wanted in the world. Now he's a boy, and Telethusa, who's beyond thrilled, tells her son he no longer has to fear. And so the wedding goes as planned the next day. Venus, Juno, and Hymen all watched with smiles as Iphis marries his love, Ianthe. So Eros proceeds with his story. He tells Dionysus of a young man named Calamos, the son of Myandros, a river god, Thus, they lived near the river Myandros. Calamos was a beautiful man, just gorgeous, with a natural grace, Eros adds. He was light on his feet, he could shoot his arrows almost as far as the gods themselves. He was basically very pretty and very impressive. A catch, you might call him. And Calamos, you see, loved a friend of his, another young man named Carpos. Carpos, like Calamos, was super gorgeous. He, quote, had such a beauty for his lot as mortal man never had. Two hot, gorgeous dudes loving each other hard. These men are young, that much is well described, and I will leave out bits of it for the ick factor, but the important thing is they're definitely the same age. This both connects them with Dionysus and Ampelus and separates them from the more standard and normal same-sex relationships of parts of the Greek world, the more problematic ones. That, and it just makes it way less icky for us today, so bonus. Eros continues, explaining to Dionysus that just like he and Ampelus, Calamos and Carpos are also completely in love and also competed against one another in contests of skill. This seems to be the thing men do together when they're in love. You know, it, it happened with Apollo and Hyacinthus as well. Athleticism and sex. <laughs> And just like Dionysus and Ampelus, Calamos and Carpos had a race and set out to see who was faster. Calamos let Carpos win. He wanted to see his boyfriend excited and was more than happy to lose on purpose. Carpos was just as happy as Calamos had hoped. And so when they next decided to have a swimming contest, Calamos was planning to let Carpos win that one too. And he was doing that. He had intentionally slowed down. He'd let Carpos pass him by in the water and was ready for his beautiful lover to burst free of the water, exclaiming his joy at winning the contest for a second time. But tragically, as all of these stories are, just as Carpos was winning the contest, he was hit with what I can only describe as a rogue wave, though this was taking place in a river, 
In any event, it was a very unexpected wave and it took out Karpos there as he swam in the river. But not only that, it hit him at just the wrong time that it flooded his mouth with water, drowning the man near instantly. Calamos was able to survive the waves battling through the water because he wasn't hit so head on. Calamos made it to the shore in a panic, breathing heavily and coughing up water, but most importantly, looking for Karpos amongst the water and the waves. He couldn't see him, couldn't hear anything from him. There was no trace of Karpos at all. Heartbroken, Calamos called out to the nymphs of the river, quote, Speak, Naiads, what wind has caught up Karpos? He continued asking the nymphs to leave his father's river and instead travel elsewhere to any other river, but to leave that one be. He calls it fatal water. He doesn't want anyone else drinking from the river that murdered his beloved Karpos. He calls and calls to the naiads, insisting they leave him. Then he turns to anger and jealousy at the death of his lover. When most natural phenomena are personified in mythology, it's really easy to blame tragic accidents on deities of any kind. The winds, the waves, the river itself is to blame in the death of Karpos. And so, just like Dionysus with Ampelus, Calamos turns to tragic, beautiful lamentation as a way to handle the death of his beloved and some blaming of others for good measure. Quote, Speak, naiads, who has quenched the light of love? How long are you, my boy? Why do you like the water so much? Can you have found a better friend in the water? Have you thrown to the winds the love of poor Calamos that you may stay with him? If one nymph of the naiads enamored has carried you off, tell me, and I will make war on them all. If wedded love is your pleasure and you want my sister for a wife, do say so, and I will build you a bride chamber in the stream. Have you passed me, Karpos, forgetting the familiar shore? I have shouted till I am tired, and you do not hear my call. If Notos blew on you, if bold Euros let him go off wandering without dances by himself, the barbarous enemy of love. If Boreas overwhelmed you, I will go to Orithia. If the wave covered you and had no pity for your beauty, if my father carried you off in the merciless rush of the wave. Let him receive his son also in those man-slaying waters. Let him hide Calamos near to dead Carpos where Carpos wandered and died. I will fall headlong. I will quench my burning love with a draught of water from Asheron. Nothing could make it better for Calamos, though. He considered himself already dead alongside his beloved, beautiful Carpos. So instead, he cut a piece of his hair, a long strand that he'd cherished, and gave it to his father as a memory of himself. Then he announced that, plainly, Calamos and Carpos had only one life. Because of that, both will have one watery death, one watery grave. With that, Calamos threw himself into the roiling river that had so recently taken the life of Carpos. <laughs>
Our next story, too, comes from Ovid, but this time we're going back to the Trojan War with another favorite character of Mythological Pride Month, Achilles. Achilles has just encountered a man, Kicknes, whose body could not be pierced by any weapon. I'll tell his story one day, but today he's mentioned because his story causes the Greeks, during the Trojan War, to discuss another story. After Achilles fought this man, the Greeks sit around the fire at night, discussing what they'd seen that day. What they'd seen reminds Nestor of a much older story, the story of an incredible warrior from even longer ago than the Trojan War. Canis of Thessaly, Nestor tells the Greeks assembled. His body showed no wounds, even though he'd been hit by a thousand blows. Canis lived on Mount Othrys. He was courageous and famous for his skills and feats in war, a true warrior, powerful and brave and strong, a hero. He was a hero who was born a woman. Canis was the most beautiful girl in all of Thessaly, so beautiful she was famous for it. Canis was so beautiful that of course every man for miles around was trying to marry her. They all traveled to her town in Thessaly to try to convince her to pick them. But Canis wasn't interested. She wasn't interested in marriage at all. One day, Canis was wandering the seashore, minding her own fucking business, when, guess what? Fucking Neptune, Poseidon, came upon her. Do you know how few stories don't involve gods raping women? Because it's honestly getting a bit ridiculous. Neptune spots Canis walking along the shore, and surprise, fucking surprise, he immediately determines that he absolutely must fuck her, and that there's just no alternative to his having sex with this woman, regardless of how she feels about it, because he is Neptune, it is his right, he is god of the sea and horses. When Neptune finishes assaulting Canis, he tells her that in return for, you know, being raped, she can have whatever she wants in the world. Weird, but what the fuck ever. Canis answers Neptune by pointing out that what she's just gone through is fucking outrageous, so she must choose something that will prevent her from ever suffering like this again. And again, let me tell you that when I picked this one, I didn't realize it would be so depressing, and you guys, I'm starting to think that most myths just were depressing, especially because most of them involve rape, and these ones happen to involve rape that is actually treated as horrifically as it really is. Canis... Canis decides that she wishes to not be a woman anymore, and that this would prevent her from suffering in the same way again, which is dark and fucked up. But Neptune grants her wish, and before she's even finished speaking, her voice is deeper and she has indeed become a man. Neptune explains that he's also gifted Canis, now Canus, they sound the same, one has an I, one has a U, with a body that is unable to be pierced by any weapon. Ovid makes a point of changing pronouns now, finishing by telling us that Canis went on to great success as an incredible and brave warrior known throughout Thessaly. And if Ovid can change the pronouns, so can everyone else. And so we have yet another story of a trans person in ancient mythology. I like to think that stories like this and that of Iphis and Ianthe were told to explain trans people in everyday life in ancient Greece and Rome. These people existed, and the ancients wanted a way of understanding what makes them different. What better way to explain something that is at times hard to grasp when you're not a trans person yourself than it being a gift from a god, as is the case in both this story and that of Iphis and Ianthe. 
a gift from a god. Some men say an army of horses, and some men say an army on foot, and some men say an army of ships is the most beautiful thing on the black earth, but I say it is love. A portion of Sappho Fragment 16, or also called Poem 4. While I would argue that Sappho stands alongside men like Hesiod and Homer in terms of literary and cultural importance in ancient Greece, as I've already mentioned, she made sure she wrote very differently from those men who came before her. She made a conscious effort not to adhere to those literary traditions that they'd set out. Yes, she tended to write more about humanity and values understood by women and of women's lives and generally daily life rather than epic but she did wade into the realm of Homeric epic and provide a bit of her own view of it. The bit of Fragment 16 that I just read now is an example of that, but it only becomes more obvious as the poem goes on. Because here Sappho is specifically comparing herself to those men who wrote of epics, of armies and fleets of ships and war and adventure— those men believe that armies and horses and ships are the most beautiful things on earth. Sappho believes it's love. The poem goes on to sympathize with Helen, discussing her decision to go off with Paris for love and taking away some of the blame that's been placed on her for that decision. Sappho questions the blame over the war. Is the woman who chose love over her husband to blame for a war, or is it the men who went to war over her choice? Sappho goes on to link this to her own absent love, a woman named Anactoria, who she laments as being gone from her. This is all from Diane Rayer's book on ancient poets, and she phrases the ultimate point of the poem best, quote, just as Helen preferred Paris over Menelaus, the best man of all, so the speaker would rather see the absent Anactoria than the traditionally male-valued glitter of war. Where those famous epic poets saw the most beauty and importance in war and violence and dominance, Sappho saw it in love, in passion, in daily life. She saw it in being a woman with the freedom to love whoever she wanted and to show it through her words. Ugh, beloved listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I fucking love that I get to tell these stories, even if they're ones I've told before. I release so many episodes and have been doing this for so many years that I often want to reshare certain stories and moments because I think they're particularly interesting and important, and otherwise they get lost in the sea of episodes that I put out. So I'm really grateful when you all appreciate these moments, specifically when it comes to these stories that feature characters we would now consider to be gay, transgender, bisexual, or pansexual, the whole of the spectrum. It's important that I share them with you all again, specifically because, like I said, there is this finite number. But representation in these stories is always important. 
especially now, seeing representation of transgender characters in the ancient world and understanding how the mythology sees them, how the gods act as medical transitions is hugely important. Transgender people have been here forever, and now more than ever, it is important we recognize that and we celebrate people for who they are. Uh, trans women are women, trans men are men, and non-binary people are exactly who they say they are. I want to be clear that whenever I use the word women, I am also referring to trans women because they are simply women. Whenever I re-air episodes or clips, I make a point of really thinking through why I'm doing it, why it fits with the podcast's theme at that moment, and why it's something I would like you to hear again. It may help me keep my life on track too, help me avoid getting entirely burned out, or in this case, allow me to explore Greece and work on my novel, which will also come back to you. But either way, I always make sure it also fits for all of you wonderful listeners. Because you listeners are how I keep this going. You're why I'm still here, and certainly why I'm wandering around Greece as you listen to this episode. I am so thankful for all of you and for every moment that you listen to my podcast. If you're interested in listening to the full episodes that feature these stories and clips, you can find a link in the episode's description to a new page on my website that features all episodes featuring LGBTQIA stories and conversations. Not all episodes from past Pride Months, but any and all episodes that feature these stories, these incredible ancient characters and people, examples of representation that is more important than ever. And you can also visit mythsbaby.com slash LGBTQIA. There is a corresponding Spotify playlist for ease of use as well. It's linked in the episode's description. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things. She's just so immensely helpful, particularly while I'm off traveling and in the case of today's episode. She's helped to put it all together for me like a true queen. Plus, she's taking on more social media and beyond. Honestly, huge lifesaver. Can't remember my podcast life without her. My intern, Grace Roby, has been an incredible help on so many things, again, particularly today's episode, where Grace worked with Michaela to pick out clips and stories from past episodes to create this LGBTQIA masterpiece. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and thus accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. <sighs> Thank you all. As always, truly couldn't do without you. I am Liv and I love this shit so damned much. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 
right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200 k for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com.